Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and Eid Mubarak to you. My name is May Yamani, and Yamani sounds a little like that land that we are going to be discussing this evening, the land that hosts Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But as many Yemenis or Yemanis believe, their origins are fluid, like the sands of the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, one day at Heathrow Airport, it was about three years ago, a British of Yemeni origin at passport uh, control exclaimed, you are a Yemeni. A Yemeni, you are, because the borders of Yemen end at the door of the Kaaba, he told me. This statement is, in terms of national boundaries, incorrect. But in terms of the movements of the people, the tribes, the loyalties, and ideas, it is emphatically true. We should be clear that this movement goes north and south. Unfortunately, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is an element of this fluidity. Indeed, Osama bin Laden's biography is a personification of these cross-currents. His father, Muhammad bin Laden, moved from Yemen to Saudi Arabia, where he became a prominent builder and very wealthy. And Osama, born and educated in Saudi Arabia, developed potent jihadi beliefs, and later took back these ideas to his ancestral homeland. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, before I introduce our distinguished speaker, Professor Fawaz Jerjes, I would like to pay tribute to his truly renowned predecessor, Professor Fred Halliday. Fred Halliday was passionately involved with Yemen, Yemenis, and the people of the Arabian Peninsula. His book, Arabia Without Sultans, has a deep influence for myself and for so many others. Fred Halliday was committed to the understanding of this complex, ill-defined and isolated land of 23 million people. Professor Fawaz with his outstanding knowledge of these transnational Islamist and jihadist movements, is one of the few people who come to grips of this phenomenon of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and its threat to Yemen, to the wider region, to the West, and indeed to the world. Professor Fawaz is the Professor of Middle East 
politics and international relations here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's also the director of the Middle East Center at the LSE. I am not going to read all his uh, biography, but his special interests include Islam and the political process, social movements, including mainstream Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, and jihadist groups like Al-Qaeda. Professor Fawaz is the author of two acclaimed books, Journey of the Jihadists Inside Muslim Militancy and The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global. He's currently writing two books, The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda, What American and Western Politicians Don't Want You to Know, and Obama and the Greater Middle East, Rhetoric versus Reality. Professor, I just uh, dis discovered that Professor Fawaz has just come back from Yemen, and he also has some slides to show us. He will be speaking for 45 minutes, after which we will have the question and answer session. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, thank you so much, May. Uh, it means a lot to me. Remember, today is the Eid, and May is taking time to, to be here. So, and uh, Dr. Yamani does not really need much introduction. Uh, she has written extensively, uh, really extensively, not just on Saudi Arabia, but also on Yemen as well. Her name itself, as she said, the Yamani is one of those roots, the Yemeni uh, society, lovely uh, society. So thank you, May, for being here with us today. And Eid Mubarak. So, uh, let me say, I mean, I, she mentioned my teacher, uh, Fred Halliday, who loved this small country of 23 million people. I mean, in fact, he began his academic career in Yemen, and he really made this contribution by writing on Yemen and uh, the Arabian. Uh, peninsula as a whole. In particular, his classic, Arabia Without Sultan, is truly still a masterpiece in terms of how you analyze social and political dynamics and the reality and the complexity of these societies. The first point I want to make tonight is that I want us to reflect, really, and this is not just an academic point, of why we are talking about Yemen today, a country of 23 million people, one of the most beautiful countries probably in the world, and I hope one day that you could visit this country. 23 million people, the poorest country in the Arab world. It's not one of the poorest countries, it's the poorest Arab country. Uh, why are we talking about Yemen? If it was not, I would argue for the attacks, the plots since December 2009, starting with the Christmas Day failed bombing and ending with the most recent attack um, and the whole notion of Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, I would argue we would not be sitting here and talking about this lovely, beautiful country, one of the poorest Arab countries. And this tells you a great deal about the prism of terrorism um, and how the prism of terrorism basically uh, forces us to discuss certain issues like Yemen. 
Unfortunately for me, Yemen at this particular juncture is really important for the wrong reasons. Uh, uh, it truly is uh, important for the wrong reason because all we think about is basically Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and I, of course today I want to highlight the major challenges uh, facing uh, Yemen and I would argue even though Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is dangerous, even though it's very insidious, even though it has persistent in its attempts to attack the American homeland and Western interests. That is, in the scale, on the scale of things, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is really a product of a deteriorating social and economic situation, and in fact, it's one of Yemen's least challenges. One of Yemen's least challenges. The first slide I want to, to come back my argument, the context I want to really make today is that you cannot, you cannot understand the revival of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula without understanding the social and economic and political and tribal divisions in this particular country. That is the conceptual context for us, the beginning, the framework, the foundation is to understand what has happened in Yemen in the last 20 years. 23 million people, 40% of the 23 million people in Yemen are unemployed, 40%. In fact, I would argue in the south of Yemen, in the south of Yemen where Al-Qaeda is based, and I will say, I will show some slides, the unemployment rate is up between 50 and 60%. 50% of the Yemeni people live either in poverty or below the poverty line, 50%. And this is, I'm talking about in the last 20 years. And now we're talking about the reason why we are fleshing out the social context because of the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. One-third of the population in Yemen is malnourished. One-third of the Yemeni population. Yemen is running out not only of oil, the only resource, the only, I mean, resource in terms of foreign currency, Yemen is running out of water. That is, Yemen as a society is dying. In fact, and, and this is not just, we're talking about international organizations uh, 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 that basically, uh, if you go to Hodeida, one of the areas in Yemen, you have hundreds of villages basically disappeared as a result of basically the lack of water resources. And in fact, oil itself in Yemen is bound to run out in the next uh, between five and ten years. And it is the only source of foreign currency, major currency at this particular uh, 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 point uh, in history. Not only you have abject poverty, not only you have a huge rate of unemployment, you have a huge explosion in terms of birth rates. It's almost 3.7, the highest in the world. So you have, uh, I mean, tremendous unemployment and you have also the birth rate is one of the highest in the world. More than 60% of the population in Yemen basically uh, below the ages of 20 years old. And when I say that, you know what it means. It means in terms of uh, uh, education, in terms of medication, in terms of uh, employment uh, opportunities. This is the reality of Yemen uh, that has been with us in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, and here, I, I want, I know, I, I, please, I, I want to bore you a bit with some history because we cannot talk about Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and what has happened in Yemen without understanding uh, the context. I would argue 1989 and 1990, 1991 are truly pivotal to understanding why we have arrived at this particular juncture 
in Yemeni history. You know what happened in 1989, the end of the Afghan war, the defeat of the Soviet forces, and of course the Mujahideen, the Islamic fighters, won the war against, well, in their view, they basically, along with the uh, Afghan uh, uh, resistance uh, force, won the war against uh, one of the greatest military forces in history. It's a moment of triumph, a moment, a moment of empowerment, a moment of arrogance on the part that basically uh, not the Afghan uh, resistance force that won the war, but the Arab Mujahideen, the contingent of Arab Mujahideen led by Abdullah Azam. Abdullah Azam was the spiritual and operational leader of the Arab Mujahideen, and of course his right-hand man, uh, Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahi. In 1989, of course, the war was won against the Soviet Union, and a greater, a more fierce struggle among the Afghan resistance groups uh, erupted in Yemen. Osama bin Laden was fed up with the whole thing. He returned to Saudi Arabia in 1989. Many of us think here, we think of Osama bin Laden of the early and mid-1990s, the man who has dedicated his life, his fanaticism to defeating, to fighting the United States and uh, uh, what he called the head of the state. Well, when he came back to Saudi Arabia in 1989, uh, Osama bin Laden was an entirely different uh, political activist. In fact, his whole worldview was based on the idea the struggle against godless communism. In fact, in the 1980s, many of the royal family in Saudi Arabia, he personally contacted some of the royal princes, and in fact, he asked them to thank the United States for supporting the uh, sacred war against uh, the Soviet, the godless communism. So when he returned to Saudi Arabia, one of his basic objectives was not to fight the United States in 1989. Between 1989 and 1990, he made the fight in Yemen, in South Yemen. Remember, Yemen was divided into North and South Yemen. So basically, between 1989 and 1990, Osama bin Laden made the fight against the socialist government in South Yemen as his fundamental goal. Uh, in terms of money, in terms of resources, in terms of also trying to mobilize a particular con contingent of Mujahideen to fight the socialist uh, government in South Yemen. Saudi Arabia was very, of course, Saudi Arabia did not really care much for the socialist government in South Yemen, but they cautioned the authorities in Saudi Arabia, cautioned Osama bin Laden against basically constructing his own foreign policy. Literally, he was told, Osama bin Laden, 1989, slow down, you're not in charge of the foreign policy of Saudi Arabia, because Osama bin Laden was basically fanatical about his commitment to intervene uh, in Yemeni uh, affairs. And uh, when, I, when I, I talk about, uh, I mean, Yemeni affairs, I'm talking about money, I'm talking about resources, I'm talking about mobilization. So 1989 was really critical because here you have the leader of the Mujahideen. Remember, Abdullah Azam was killed in 1989 as the war basically uh, folded. He was uh, assassinated by a particular bomb. This brings me to 1990, 1991. If there is one particular key, if there is one particular key moment that really helps us to understand why we're here, it was the Gulf War in 1990, 1991. I know there is no particular historical event that provides a key to unlocking the puzzle of any society. But the reason why 1990, 1991 was critical for the, I mean, here you have, because Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, as you all know, in 1990, and the United States assembled one of the largest uh, campaigns in modern history in order to expel the Iraqi president out of Kuwait. 
And, uh, of course, Yemen and Jordan and a few Arab governments did not want uh, Western intervention in the Gulf. Yemen was of the opinion that the Arab League, the League of the Arab States, should be in charge of trying to resolve the crisis between Kuwait and uh, Iraq. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia was of a different opinion. That is, uh, even Osama bin Laden made uh, a great deal of effort to convince the Saudi government, let me raise a Mujahideen army along the same lines of the Mujahideen army in Afghanistan, and I, will, I would expel, he said, I would expel the uh, Iraqi army uh, from Kuwait. He, I mean, he went to several princes, and this is part of the record now. I mean, so the officials now uh, are on record saying that he made several pleas in order to convince the authorities in Saudi Arabia to uh, rely on its own uh, assets and resources as opposed to inviting the Americans to expel the Iraqi army uh, from, uh, uh, from Kuwait. Well, we know what happened. Uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Kuwait and the Gulf states viewed the position of Yemen as a dagger in the back, literally. Uh, James Baker not only told the Iraqis, he told the Yemeni uh, ambassador in Washington, he said, your decision not to support the American presence in the Gulf will be the most expensive decisions in your life, quote unquote, in 1990-1991. James Baker was the uh, former minister of the United States. And literally, that decision, that ambivalence, Yemen's ambivalence about the entire campaign against Saddam Hussein was the most, the costliest, uh, costlier decision, costliest decision in terms of, 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 of Yemen. Uh, you had more than a million uh, Yemeni uh, immigrants in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, again, in, in the 19, 1980s and, and 1990, um, I mean, immigrants were really the major source of income for uh, Yemen. And I would not say a one million uh, Yemenis were expelled. Well, they were forced to leave uh, uh, directly and indirectly uh, from Saudi Arabia. Here you have one million uh, unemployed men returning to their country. Most of them lost their entire savings because uh, not just uh, Yemenis, you had Palestinians and others who were perceived to be supporting the uh, Iraqi invasion uh, of Kuwait. In the case of Yemen, it created truly a grave social and political crisis. Some of us who visited Yemen had, I mean, refugee camps all over the borders, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And uh, here you have people very angry, very enraged, very dissatisfied. They're used to a particular lifestyle. The Yemeni government did not really have the vision and the resources and the ability to integrate and uh, uh, provide uh, in employment. Uh, and not only you had, uh, I mean, uh, a million Yemeni uh, enraged men, basically, who lost their, even Osama bin Laden, the same man who, was that, who dedicated his life to the fight against godless communism left Saudi Arabia in 1991 and he went first to Pakistan 1992 and then to Sudan, he stayed in Sudan and basically the change, the shift, the transformation, here was a man who dedicated his life to the fight against godless communism in 1991, there was truly a transformation. The same man who tanked American officials for their support against the, the evil empire between 1979 and 1989, basically in his eyes, America became the greatest Satan, the great Satan, in, in, in using the word he in the 1990s. So you have two developments. 
you had here, Yemen now became a theater, a very important theater for, I mean, mobilization, because you have still, Yemen is divided between the north and the south, now you have a grave social crisis, now you have Osama bin Laden going to Pakistan and then Sudan and trying to create an infrastructure, trying to mobilize an army, first to fight his own government, and initially the fight was, I mean, for the Arabian, uh, Arabia without salt. That was, that was Osama bin Laden uh, fight. Here, and I, I'm, I'm simplifying a great deal because I'm talking about history. I just want to give you a glance, really a flavor of why, you know, how history evolved in the last 20 years and why we have reached this particular junction. So remember, there was north and south. Uh, um, and between, even though Osama bin Laden was in Sudan trying to build a business empire, and also try to build an ideological infrastructure in Yemen. He was also, his eyes were focused. He never lost sight that Yemen and the presence of a socialist, communist-like government in South Yemen. So between 2000, between 1992 and 1994, Osama bin Laden, resources were, even when he was in Sudan, resources were flowing to, South, to North Yemen in order to mobilize an army to defeat the socialist, the godless government that existed in South Yemen. There was a major, a fierce battle between the North and the South in the early 1990s, in particular in 1994. And guess what? The jihadists, the jihadists who basically fought in the Afghan war, uh, Osama bin Laden uh, man and many others, uh, militant Islamists, joined the fight, joined the fight alongside the Saleh government against the socialist government in the South. In fact, everything we know that the jihadists uh, contingent in the North-South civil war again played a pivotal role in really the outcome of the battle. I, again, I don't have the time to explain what they did. Um, I mean, the first thing the jihadists did in South Yemen basically were to burn uh, uh, all the nightclubs. South Yemen was, um, I mean, if you read uh, Fred Halliday's uh, writings, was really one of the few progressive islands in Arabia. Uh, was uh, a place that you had nightclubs, uh, you had uh, a relatively open society, uh, uh, women were quite, uh, uh, lived in a very open society, uh, you could buy alcohol from any store uh, in South Yemen, and they basically what the jihadists did, because they became the spearhead of the fight. I mean, the, the Yemeni forces, of course, they had an army, but here you have a contingent of jihadists dedicated, mobilized, fanatical. They were fighting for a greater cause than just defeat the South. They were fighting because they wanted to really establish a Quranic-like uh, uh, state in uh, South uh, Yemen. Uh, not, only, not only, of course, the war was won, and not only the jihadists were rewarded in South Yemen by giving a major say in the new government that was set up by the Saleh government, President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who has been in power for the last 31 years. He basically empowered the jihadists and uh, given them a greater say, a great say in South Yemen, because then you had a restructuring of the entire social and political landscape in uh, South Yemen. So, you had here two, so here you have Yemen unified, well, forcefully unified, as a result of a civil war. And, of course, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was building an infrastructure in Sudan between 1992 and 1996. 
He was forced out of Sudan in 1996. He went to Afghanistan and began the process, the, the final process that basically uh, led him to 9-11. Uh, Between 1996 and 1999, the largest contingent of Al-Qaeda, of Osama bin Laden's contingent, the largest two contingents were Saudis and Yemenis. Uh, truly, Osama bin Laden throughout the Afghanistan went out of his way to personally recruit Yemeni activists and fighters. In fact, his bodyguards, uh, his cooks, the people who were in charge of the safety of his wives uh, were basically all Yemenis uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Osama bin Laden believed that the Yemenis were quote-unquote honorable people, courageous people, people you rely, tribal people. Uh, they're honest, they're honorable, you could rely on, and also because of his own roots. Uh, remember, his father came from uh, Yemen. He himself had uh, 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 deep roots um, uh, in Yemen. What I'm trying to say, and the, the big point what I'm trying to say is that uh, Al-Qaeda is not really alien uh, to Yemen. Al-Qaeda has never been alien. Al-Qaeda has been in Yemen from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of the birth of the uh, Al-Qaeda project, Yemen has always been pivotal in this particular equation. And Osama bin Laden really spent a great deal of attention and resources and energy on trying to uh, make a major foothold um, um, in uh, Yemen. From 1989, from 1989, long before he, he changed uh, his worldview uh, up uh, to the present. Here brings me to 9-11. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying a great deal and distorting in the process. 9-11 uh, took place, and of course, there was a great deal of outcry worldwide. Uh, and the Saleh government, basically, not just the Saleh government, many governments, including the Pakistani government, they realized they had no choice but to deal with the Al-Qaeda presence in Yemen. And please, what, when I say foothold, I'm not really talking about thousands. When I say that the largest contingent of Al-Qaeda, I'm talking about really a few hundreds. I'm talking about between five and 900 people. I'm not talking about an army, tens of thousands. Of, of, uh, this is uh, because at the height of its power in the late 1990s, Al-Qaeda never numbered more than between 3,000 and 4,000 fighters. Al-Qaeda now is down to between 200 and 300, Al-Qaeda central in the Pakistan areas. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the numbers range between 50 and 300. 50 and no one, anyone who tells you that they know the number, no intelligence service, the Americans or the British, were all speculating about the actual weight of the, but take, give and take, it's between 50 and 300 uh, fighters. The overwhelming majority of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula are rookies, basically young men who basically are lured by the lure of Al-Qaeda or opposition to the government. You have about three dozen seasoned, skilled fighters of the Afghan generation, the ones who fought in Afghanistan. So really, the, the core of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, we're talking about between 30 and 40 seasoned fighters. Um, and I would say uh, the rest are rookies. And I, I will say a few words at the end of how you deal with this particular uh, presence. So what did Ali Abdullah Saleh do? He promised the Americans, I will do my best to take care of Al-Qaeda presence. What he tried to do, he offered them a contract. Look, uh, it's over now. We have the Americans are, you know, saying you must uh, uh, purge uh, Yemen 
at the Al-Qaeda presence. All I want you to do is basically stay quiet, don't carry out any attacks inside Yemen. Uh, it was a, a great deal of, they put a, I interviewed the, the gentleman, the cleric was in charge of trying to co-opt Al-Qaeda Al members in Yemen. Again, what has happened uh, between 2001 and 2003, that basically Al-Qaeda in Yemen was split into two major factions. A sizable number of Al-Qaeda basically bought the government's uh, uh, contract, jobs, uh, uh, housing, benefits, integrated into the security forces. Um, but of course, the Iraq war between 2003 and 2007 put a great deal of pressure, and I'm not defending here the Yemeni government because I, 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 I traveled quite a deal, a great deal of pressure on the Yemeni government. Many of the same jihadists who agreed to basically take what the government basically were outraged by what was happening in Iraq. The flow, if it was not for logistical purposes, I would argue you would have had tens of thousands. The, the traffic, the flow to uh, Iraq would have been much heavier than the flow to Afghanistan for a variety of reasons, because Iraq resonates much deeper in the Arab and Muslim imagination than Afghanistan. I'm not putting down Afghanistan for any reason. But anyway, so many of the same fighters who accepted the government deals basically tra traveled to uh, Iraq and, and fought in Iraq. And as a result, I'm talking about probably between 200, 300, again, give and take. We're all as speculating, but it, it, those are the numbers. Um, so there was a major uh, split within the Al-Qaeda branch in Yemen. And many, many uh, uh, former jihadists felt that the government itself did not honor its contract. They did not, because for a variety of reasons. I mean, the Yemeni government is very corrupt. Uh, the Yemeni government is very incompetent. You have a leadership, uh, I mean, a president who has been in power for 31 years. Uh, this is not an institutionalized, uh, I mean, uh, government that basically. So what, what happened, what I'm trying to say is that basically uh, they started making trouble for Saleh and also trying to uh, carry out uh, some attacks uh, uh, outside uh, Yemen, in Iraq uh, and elsewhere. This brings me to the question of revival, the revival of the Al-Qaeda branch, because between 2001 and 2009, uh, Al-Qaeda really was uh, splintered, fragmented, inconsequential, uh, because it did not have the leadership asset. Remember, regardless of how many fighters you have, uh, for an ideological uh, 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 movement like Al-Qaeda, you need leadership. You need skilled leadership. You need ideological motivation. You need legitimation. You need, basically, leadership. Leadership matters a great deal. Uh, for some of you students of politics and international relations, personality matters a great deal, in particular, uh, charismatic uh, personality. What happened in uh, 2009 is basically the uh, Saudi branch of Al-Qaeda uh, was, or is, uh, was strategically defeated by 2009. And most of the surviving uh, assets of Al-Qaeda migrated to Yemen, I mean Yemen and Saudi Arabia. So you had fertilization between the Yemen branch that was basically inconsequential, fragmented, did not really have leadership, and the Saudi branch in 2009. Um, and the two top leaders of, of uh, the merger of Al-Qaeda, the two branches merged and they were called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. There was no Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula between, December, between uh, 2009. And the top leaders is Nasser al-Wahishi. Uh, Nasser al-Wahishi 
uh, was uh, or is a, uh, one of the uh, pioneer generations, the Afghan generation. He fought uh, uh, with Osama bin Laden, uh, a very disciplined, highly organized, uh, uh, even though he comes across very misleading, his appearances, but one of the most well-disciplined and organized uh, uh, skill leader in Yemen. And of course, you have his uh, military commander, Qasim uh, Al-Yan, again, a fierce uh, uh, fighter who also uh, was very close to Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahir. This was the merger. Uh, uh, what the merger did provided skilled leadership. It provided uh, 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 basically uh, members with operational know-how, uh, bomb making. Uh, it provided also uh, people of the first generation who have been fighting either in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Saudi Arabia. And uh, this is why you have, uh, this is what happened as a result uh, of this particular merger. Uh, those two people are really critical. Uh, I mean, uh, not just the two people, critical to the revival of Al-Qaeda uh, in the Arabian uh, Peninsula. Uh, and the reason why I know uh, probably I'm simplifying a great deal and I'm focusing on two people, but I'm talking about really skilled fighters, skilled fighters who transform a decapitated organization into a relatively active uh, uh, minor uh, organization. Take, for example, this gentleman, Ibrahim Hassan al-Asiri. He is a Saudi asset who, again, uh, came to Yemen in 2009 and joined uh, uh, in the uh, merger that took place in Yemen. He, it's believed, uh, uh, Ibrahim uh, Hassan al-Asiri, this is not my information, I, I have no information about it, but the American intelligence services believe that he designed the underwear Christmas Day failed bomber, uh, bomb and also the uh, two explosives um, on the cargo plane. Uh, this is the kind of assets uh, that the merger really brought to the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So you have the top leaders and you had bomb makers, the know-how, who he is the same gentleman who also uh, designed the same bomb and he sent his brother who basically almost uh, assassinated the chief of Saudi Arabia counterterrorism office, again the same person. This tells you really is that how few assets could really transform uh, a small organization uh, uh, like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Not only you had assets in terms of skill leaders, in terms of uh, operational know-how, now you have uh, a charismatic leadership, you have a vision, you have legitimation. Again, we, we just I want you, there is really one point I, I would like to stress tonight is that for this particular group, for this particular uh, movement, you need uh, theological legitimation. You can't just carry out an attack like this. Um, take uh, uh, Farouk Abdel Muttalib, the Christmas Day failed bomber. He was radicalized uh, either uh, in uh, the United Kingdom or somewhere else. But when he was here, he couldn't just carry out uh, a particular attack because he wanted to. What did he do? He traveled all the way to Yemen. He met reportedly twice with uh, uh, Anwar al-Awlaqi, not because, because he wanted legitimation. He wanted not training, because we know he didn't get the training, uh, fortunately, uh, otherwise he would have. But that was very important. And most of the attention in the West really foc has focused on uh, Anwar al-Awlaqi's uh, most of you know that he's an American-born uh, Yemeni uh, cleric 
who uh, lived, was born um, and, and lived most of his life in the United States and went to Saudi Arabia after 2001. But he is very important for the Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula because he provides the vision, the legitimation, the leadership, the charisma. I mean, here you have now, in the eyes of the Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, they cannot communicate with Osama bin Laden anymore and Ayman Zawahiri for a variety of reasons. You know why? They're hibernating deep and deeper underground. This is a man who lives amongst the foot soldiers and lieutenants and provides a great deal of leadership and, and in this particular sense, and in this particular sense, this is really where his importance lies in the fact that he's important for the, uh, uh, for the uh, members of Al-Qaeda in the uh, Arabian uh, Peninsula. Uh, what, again, to come back, I, I want to qualify now because I don't want to give you the impression that somehow here you have an army of, of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula waiting to wage a relentless war against uh, the Yemeni government and the West. We're talking about really the, the Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula located in three major areas, tribal areas, in the uh, Shabwa and the, uh, uh, which area, uh, Shabwa and uh, Abyan uh, provinces, and also, which is really in the south, and also in, uh, in Ma'arab. Ma'arab is eastern of the capital, and I will show you a, a map. Uh, uh. So Al-Qaeda is not really spread all over Yemen. Again, I started my talk by conceptualizing, contextualizing my talk, and I said, Al-Qaeda really is a creature, is a product of deteriorating social and political and economic conditions in Yemen. And where is Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? The overwhelming majority of the 50, 300 uh, men are located in the south. Because not only, I, I, and I, I suggested, not only you have 40% unemployment, you have almost 60% unemployment. You have a separatist movement now in the South. The South is saying now we want a divorce. The union that was forced on us in 1994, uh, 1994 is, is not working. We want. So what Al-Qaeda has been trying to do, and this is the big point I really want to make about the, uh, the Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. Even though it's tiny, even though it's inconsequential in operational terms, what Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula has been trying to do is to submerge itself to embed itself in the deteriorating social and political context in Yemen itself. And the South is really a, a, a brilliant example of how Al-Qaeda, I mean, think about Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, they want to create a Quranic-based state. This is their ideal. Yet they are collaborating with former socialists, former socialists and secularists who want a divorce of the Union with the North. And it tells you a great deal about the ability of those men to really try to learn from their mistakes and try to deal with uh, the, the security uh, situation uh, um, uh, in, uh, in Yemen. Uh, this is, again, uh, this, is the, this is where Al-Qaeda is. It's in particular in the Abyan uh, and the Shabwa province. This is in, in South Yemen, and a few in the Ma'arab province, eastern of the capital. So really, they're on the fringe. They're on the fringe of Yemeni society. And when I say the South here, this is where the separatist movement, there are major battles uh, and infighting between the government in the north and the, uh, um, uh, 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 and the government, the Saleh uh, government. This gentleman here, again, probably the names does not mean any. He was in charge of the government's uh, spearhead against the socialist government in 1994. He was the man, he was the, the commander of the jihadist contingent against the socialist 
same man now is basically has turned against the government and is leading, he is the spearhead, uh, the vanguard of the anti-Saleh government in the South. And this tells you about the transformation that has taken place and how former allies now are uh, uh, worse uh, enemies. Let me, let me, I want to really uh, wrap up my talk and talk about uh, where we are today and, and, and uh, uh, what, what can be done in Yemen. Uh, we know that since December 2009, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been very persistent in its attempts to attack the American homeland and Western interests. And uh, in fact, over the last uh, one year, it has shown uh, creativity and uh, truly, I mean, very creative. Even American intelligence services and politicians have been, I mean, surprised and, and I mean, terribly surprised by, by the sophistication and the creativity of this particular small group that numbers between 50 and 300. But several points I, want, I would like to put on the table just to think about, reflect on. The first point is that Yemeni public opinion is not receptive to Al-Qaeda. We are talking about a very limited number of militants. Most of the militants, most of the extremists are located in the south because the environment, the environment is very receptive. There is a clash between the North and the South, a separate movement. The second point I want to say is that most of the Al-Qaeda members are rookies. That at the end of the day, that even if we say the largest number, 300, those are not really skilled fighters. You're talking about two or three dozens that basically would make a stand and, 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 and fight. So again, uh, keep in mind this fact that the 300 numbers, the 300 fighters are not really uh, real uh, skilled with major uh, training. The third point is that the tribes, the tribes that host Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, they do it not for ideological reasons. The tribes, if history is a guide, I don't need to tell you about the Yemeni tribes, are some of the most pragmatic uh, groups in world history. I mean, this is not, they host Al-Qaeda because they want to leverage Al-Qaeda in their struggle against the government. They host Al-Qaeda because of a tribal code of honor. And I would argue that when the costs of hosting Al-Qaeda becomes too prohibitive, the tribes in the South will basically kick Al-Qaeda out. And we have, I'm not, this is not just speculation. Uh, in fact, in before the, the most recent bombing uh, plot in Shabwa, the tribes basically forced in Shabwa uh, um, province, uh, the tribes forced dozens of Al-Qaeda members to flee to the mountains because the presence of Al-Qaeda in that particular province became very costly to that particular tribe. Again, this is very important to keep in mind that the, the, the environment that hosts Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, it's not ideologically receptive to Al-Qaeda's transnational message. We have to think and understand the local context and why Al-Qaeda has found a, 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 an embrace, a welcome embrace for not ideological reasons, but rather because of the tribal divisions, because of the multiple uh, uh, cleavages that exist in the country. And in fact, not only in Shabwa, the tribes kicked Al-Qaeda just in the last you know, uh, uh, few uh, days, a new coalition of tribes led by one of the most powerful and, and uh, uh, tribe, the Khil tribe, basically declared the uh, presence now, the establishment of a new coalition in order to cleanse Yemen out of Al-Qaeda. 
this is serious. It's serious because they realize Al-Qaeda is doing a great deal of damage to Yemen. Uh, I mean, Yemen now, I mean, think of the, and their own interests. And also, I think this coalition, I'm sure, I have no doubts about it, that, uh, uh, I mean, big money uh, changed hands. Uh, now both Saudi Arabia and Yemen's Gulf neighbors, and even the government is trying to uh, make, uh, uh, to build bridges to the same tribes who basically are hosting uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, and again, just before the most recent uh, uh, bomb uh, attempt, uh, dozens of Al-Qaeda members, some of the Rukis, basically surrendered themselves to the Yemeni authorities as a result of tribal mediation. What I'm trying to say here is that, uh, that is, it's, we're not talking about really here a, 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 an extremely, uh, we're talking about a situation once you deal with the conditions that really led or caused the tribes to host Al-Qaeda, you could deal with the consequences. I think what, what the, the big point what I'm trying to say is that on their own, counterterrorism measures want to do. Uh, that is, it doesn't matter how much, uh, 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 I mean, how many uh, boots you have on the ground. What you have to deal is with the social and political conditions and try to create a broad coalition of the Yemeni government and the opposition and the tribes, because the reason why the tribes are hosting Al-Qaeda, the tribes are trying to basically tell the government, look, we have options, uh, because President uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, has been uh, using and manipulating tribal divisions in order to uh, also, uh, uh, I mean, maintain authority uh, and uh, power. Uh, again, to, 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 to stress this particular point is that at the end of the day, uh, unless uh, Yemen's Gulf neighbors and unless the United States and Britain and the international community appreciate and realize that at the end of the day, the most effective means to really fight Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is to create a broad-based coalition, is to mobilize the tribes in Yemen, is to educate Yemeni public opinion that really does not care about Al-Qaeda, the ideology of Al-Qaeda. Counterterrorism measures as they're being used in Pakistan, Afghanistan, are unlikely to produce any major uh, results. In fact, I would go further and say, if the United States if the United States, as seems the case, if the United States now uses the same model that it uses in Pakistan, this would be disastrous, a recipe for really playing into Al-Qaeda hands. And I, my argument is that one of the reasons why Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been persistent in its efforts to attack the United States is to really drag the United States into the Yemeni context. In fact, um, again, I don't know if you know, since May 2009, the United States has carried out several bombings in Yemen. Uh, uh, dozens of Yemeni civilians have been killed as a result of the American bombings and more than a dozen of Al-Qaeda fighters. And those, uh, I mean, attacks by the United States were really brilliantly manipulated and used by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, including Al-Wahishi and Al-Awlaqi, who went on and, I mean, said, well, look, look what the United States is trying to do. And the reason why any kind of unilateral American action could be very disastrous, because, again, you're talking about I'm, I'm, I'm. Yemen, here you have one of the most nationalistic societies in the Arab world. Uh, this is a highly, highly uh, 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 religiously based society and nationalistic society. Once, once Al-Qaeda turns the fight, Al-Qaeda versus the United States, you lose the fight in Yemen. Uh, and it would undermine the legitimacy of the Saleh government uh, further in the eyes of the population. The reason why Saleh has not really been able to deal with Al-Qaeda, 
I mean, Saleh used to have the assets and resources to co-opt adversaries and maintain France for the last 31 years. And since 1990, 1991, the resources at the disposal of Saleh have been very limited. He no longer has the resources to co-opt adversaries, tribal adversaries, and maintain France. His friends now are migrating to the opposition because the man does not really have much to offer. And this is why it seems to me the worst thing we can do, uh, in particular Western strategy, is to basically put all its eggs in the Saleh basket. Uh, I mean, I think if I was Saleh, think about it. Um, Al-Qaeda is big business. Al-Qaeda is a limited threat. I mean, if I were sitting in, 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 I would say, well, yes, I mean, 300, but this is big business. Let's just give you an idea, and I don't have the time, I'm simplifying a great deal. In 2006, the United States provided Yemen with uh, $4.6 million in aid. 2006, $2.6 million. The United States now, this year, has provided Yemen with $155 million in security counterterrorism measures. $155 million. This is just counterterrorism. In fact, Yemen competes with Pakistan in terms of the sums of money. Um, training special forces, helicopters, providing engineers. Think about it. I mean, I, if I were Ali Abdullah Saleh, who's very much interested in the consolidation of my authority and also uh, grooming my son, Ahmed, to become the new president, I surely would. Uh, well, I mean, this is great, it's a great gift. I mean, Al-Qaeda, I'm sorry to say it, but that's, that's, that's a very important thing. And that's why, at the end of the day, come back to, I mean, the United States, what the United States is trying to do, uh, throwing money at it. Uh, uh, of course, the Yemeni government is there, but at the end of the day, what you need to do is to try to rebuild the institutions in Yemen. You want to really your resources to reach, to reach uh, public opinion, in particular the tribes, because most of the, I mean, you're talking about the majority of people, not uh, tribal people. You want to basically convince Saleh or not Saleh to basically uh, set up a representative national unity government. You have elections coming up soon. You want to make sure that the elections are genuine. There is a legitimate parliament. Uh, the reason why the tribes are basically revolting against the government and hosting al-Qaeda because the tribes are fed up. I mean, this is a start society. Uh, uh, you have now major social, a, a grave social crisis. Uh, oil is basically uh, uh, running out. Water is in, in, in very short supply. Uh, the money is no longer flowing as much as it used to do uh, for a variety of reasons because corruption in Yemen is one of the most corrupt societies. Um, and at the end of the day, I want to conclude by saying that uh, at the end of the day, this is a very limited a very limited challenge as opposed to a strategic threat. I know probably we have heard so much. I'm not saying it's not dangerous. I'm saying it's a limited. And I'm also saying that this is, you cannot understand, you cannot deal with Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula without contextualizing the rise and decline and fall and the revival of Al-Qaeda. We need to understand why this particular branch has revived, why the tribes are uh, providing shelter uh, to Al-Qaeda, and at the end of the day, we need to understand the fears and the aspirations of the Yemenis. And this is a Yemeni problem. Yemenis are capable 
of dealing with this particular, as long as there is an effective government, as long as there is a broadly based uh, nationalist government, as long as the tribes join in this uh, particular uh, coalition. I want to stop here because I know that is, we have any questions. That is great. Do you want to stay here? Thank you very much. You can hear me. That was very clear and the depth of analysis. And you also made it uh, easy to listen to such a complex and sad story of uh, that country. I am sure there are going to be many questions. I have some myself. So uh, if you would like to uh, ask a question, please give your name and, if possible, your affiliation for Professor Fawaz. Hi, my name is Nadia. I'm celebrating Eid here, but I come from Kuwait. Um, thank you, Allah Barakvich. Uh, I'm an LSE alumna. I graduated with an MSc in Global Politics. Now I'm working with the Tony Blair Advisory Group in Government of Kuwait. Uh, my question is, have, in your research, have you tapped into the relationship between Al-Houthi rebels, who are also impoverished and deprived of benefits from the government, and Al-Qaeda? Thank you. Shall we take four questions, May, and then we'll uh, try to answer them? So four at, at a time, what do you think? That's a, yeah. that's a good idea. Yes. There's a question here, I think. Um, Mina Lami, um, LSE. I just wanted to know, is there coordination, well I'm sure there is, but what, what is the extent of the coordination between um, Al-Qaeda and their peninsula and Al-Qaeda Corps, for example, Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Dawahari, or are they for, their, for reasons, um, for security reasons and difficulty to communicate? Is Al-Qaeda and the Arab Peninsula operating on its own more independently and deciding what its plans are and targets are? Um, sorry, I have that question. Hi, um, Will Stockdale, King's College London. Um, you place quite a lot of weight, it seems, on uh, the uh, problems of corruption in the current government and that a change in government might be needed um, to create this broad coalition. Um, but is there a legitimate domestic opposition um, within Yemen which could be called on, um, which, could, you know, which could actually replace uh, this corrupt government, or is there just simply a vacuum that needs, you know, and who's going to fill that? Thank you. My name is Sato. I'm a Japanese, and I also do some research about Yemen last 30 years. And I totally agree with your argument. But since they admitted this kind of the coalition anti-Al-Qaeda is valid, still, what kind of economic the policy could be possible by who, whoever take the, the, the power? It's very difficult. How do you think about economic prosperity for the future? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me start with a question. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Al-Houthiyun. Um, Al-Houthiyun, uh, I talked about a separatist movement in the South. Uh, what I did not really mention, that from 2004 to 
to just uh, last year, there was a, a very bloody, very costly uh, uh, battle between the government and a, a, a group, a tribal group called Al-Huthiyun. You're talking about six, seven rounds of really bloody, costly uh, fights between the government, and it, it bled both sides dry. Major atrocities were committed on both sides. Um, and the Yemeni government accused, has accused the Houthiyun of being basically the vanguard of Iran's, uh, in, and, and unfortunately it took on a sectarian uh, meaning, being Sunni and Shiite because al-Houthiyun is a Yazidis, that is uh, Shiites. And what the government has tried to do is to say, well, look, al-Houthiyun were basically our uh, uh, fifth column in Yemen, and uh, uh, Iran was behind, the, the driver behind. Of course, it's a very complex, it tells you a great deal about the dissatisfaction, about the disintegration, about the tribal divisions in the country. And uh, uh, it, but there is no, remember, uh, I mean, there are two different, Al-Houthiyun is a more of a Shiite-like organization, where Al-Qaeda is a hyper-Sunni-based organization. The two don't see eye to eye. Even at one point, though, the leader of Al-Houthiyun in Yemen, in the north, in the north, basically threatened, he said, well, if the government really pushes us to the wall, we would basically consider aligning ourselves with Devil. I mean, that was basically yeah. an empty threat. But, but at the end of the day, what, I mean, the reason why this is a very important point, it tells you about the gravity of the crisis in Yemen. So not only you have deteriorating social and political conditions, not only you have abject poverty, pervasive corruption, you have a, I mean, here you have civil war in the, in the north, and you have a separatist movement in the south. The tribes in the middle of Yemen are extremely uh, restive and easy, and that's why the ability of the government, the ability of the government to respond to threats and challenges uh, have declined tremendously. Uh, and that's why at the end of the day, and this brings me to my second question about the opposition. Uh, the reason why I focus a great deal about a broad-based uh, comprehensive coalition because on its own, the government cannot deal with the multiple challenges and threats facing Yemen. And that's why the opposition in Yemen is one of the most vibrant oppositions in the Arab world. And I, I, over the years, I have interviewed Al-Islah and others. Truly, you have a, a, a very deeply entrenched opposition. And, and Islamists, nationalists, independents, I'm talking about a, and they have pushed, been pushing very hard, the Yemeni government, to basically have free elections, transparent elections, genuine elections. And now, I mean, I'm delighted to say that both uh, the European Union and the United States are insisting that the forthcoming elections be transparent, that the opposition is integrated, because the opposition, Al-Islah party, Al-Islah is the reformist, it's a mainstream Islamist party, could play a decisive role in delegitimizing Al-Qaeda. If you integrate the Islamist, uh, Al-Islah in particular, into the government. So yes, there is a very dynamic, vibrant, and complex opposition. And really the battle that's taking place in Yemen today is an internal battle. And once that particular legitimacy crisis is resolved, what we're talking about here in Yemen is what I call a vacuum, a huge vacuum of political authority. That this man, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president, and I don't mean, I mean, who has basically had plenty of resources to co-opt adversaries and maintain enemies, no longer has the resources to do so. Uh, now, uh, friends are fleeing and adversaries are challenging his authority. 
because, again, of the gravity of the social crisis, the lack of resources. Um, um, uh, so unless you, you, you basically invest, you create a legitimate government, uh, you cannot deal with a multiple uh, structural crisis that faces uh, Yemen. Is there coordination between... Uh, this, is, this is a big question. If you, if you really read the nonsense that's, I mean, everything uh, is basically goes back to the tribal areas in Pakistan. But everything is Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri basically calls the shots. There's signature everywhere. This is the easy way out because, I mean, you have, and in the social sciences we say, any explanation that explains everything explains nothing. The question is then, why Al-Qaeda has revived now? I mean, we have to understand what has happened. Why it, I mean, declined and, and, and you know, after 2001 and almost collapsed. You have to talk about the social condition. I'm not saying there's a causal link between poverty and Al-Qaeda. That's not the question. It's much more complex than that, the students of politics and history. But what I'm suggesting is that Al-Qaeda now, Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahi, are really more of what I call global preachers as opposed to operational commanders. They have been hibernating deeper and deeper underground. According to the, the consensus within the American intelligence authority and community is that they have chosen personal survival over organizational uh, survival. I'll show you how bad. Uh, those people are, they have no access. They, 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 that's why you, you have the audio tapes and the videotapes every once in a while because they, they can't. You know what's happening in the Pakistan tribal area. I don't need to tell you. But what has happened, and this is a very important point, to qualify what I said is that when the merger took place in 2009, Ayman Zawahi released a very specific, very important, very lengthy message in which, in which he said he called on the tribal people of Yemen, the honorable people in, in Yemen, to basically look at what's happening, to come to the defense of their religion and culture and society, to stand up against the corrupt government uh, in Yemen, to take on the American stooges uh, in Yemen. And he and Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, for a while, they were really, we thought they were trying to learn from their past mistakes, to submerge themselves, embed themselves within local conditions. But since May, just since May, Al-Qaeda, and that's, that's, you can count on it, it's its own worst enemies. Basically, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula now has taken on the government. There is a fierce battle taking place between the government authorities. I'm talking about hundreds of casualties. Um, I mean, more than 100 uh, uh, soldiers and lieutenants in Yemen have been killed since May. And this is ultimately, this is because ultimately you can't take on local authority. It doesn't matter how, because ultimately you're going to run out of steam. And this battle is, is a lost battle. And that's why my reading, I could be wrong, I mean, just this is really conjecture, speculation. When I, my understanding is that I can't understand why this particular small organization is really trying to attack the United States in particular without understanding, I mean, my take on it is that that they want the United States to come in. I mean, this, think of what a gift would be for Al-Qaeda because they, you transform the struggle overnight. Then it's no longer a struggle between the you know, 50, 300 Al-Qaeda members and the authorities. It would become between the, the great uh, Satan and, and Yemen. And that's what you want. And what worries me a great deal, what worries me a great deal is that there is serious discussion and debate within, American, within the American foreign policy establishment, and a serious consideration now has been given to transferring authority of the Yemen portfolio to the CIA from the Army and the Special Operation Forces. This is a nightmare scenario, because what it means is that you are applying the Pakistani model to Yemen. Uh, that is, you're using, because I don't need to tell you about when you empower the CIA, you don't need any kind of congressional authority, that you don't, the army 
the army, army operations, special operations are entirely different than the CIA. And as we understand, and these serious reports, it's not just uh, leaks from the administration, you have hundreds of special operation forces are being deployed in Yemen and near Yemen. You have drones that, uh, I talked to Yemenis, the drones all over, I mean, the South, American drones, and, and uh, this is 24 hours. Uh, and, and this is where, and, and the, four, the four major bombings that have been carried out by the United States since, this, since May 2009 have done a great deal of damage, truly. I mean, again, you could kill, uh, even though in the last few weeks, uh, U.S. drones have not been able to even fire once because of the lack of intelligence resources. And this tells you that even Al-Qaeda itself, even in the Pakistani tribal areas, are learning. And that's why you have the short-term counter-terrorism measures and you have the strategic terms. How do you, how do you take on Al-Qaeda in the longer term? You have to really basically mobilize the tribal public opinion and in order to take on uh, Al-Qaeda. May I uh, just comment here, especially on the question about the uh, Houthis, um, just a correction that Abdel Malik, al Houthi, their leader, had denied saying that we will be dealing with uh, Al Qaeda. And he had said, yes, because what is interesting is you have on the one hand the regime, and we know Ali Abdullah Saleh is a Zaydi. Just uh, every village in uh, in a town in Yemen is both Zaydi and Shafi'i Sunni. But what is interesting is, as the president um, used the terrorists in our ground, and they were um, talking about the Houthis themselves as terrorists. That is why. The, their leader of the Houthis during the conflicts they had from 2004 denied and said we are ideologically and culturally different and completely different from Al-Qaeda and they have animosity against the Salafis who uh, have come in. But as you are talking about the solutions that come with, from within and the uh, tribes uh, in the south, in Hadramaut, I, I was thinking of the role of the uh, Zaydis, a more positive role than the sectarian tensions that are uh, growing at the moment. We know that because of the conflicts in the north, that area that had conflict and chaos benefited, of course, the Al-Qaeda, because then they can uh, escape through this geographic, uh, mountainous, uh, uh, as the Saudis, uh, just uh, this I was reading a lot on their website, as the Saudis got involved in the last round until January 2010, they described those Yemenis in the north, they said we're not fighting people, we're fighting monkeys because of that that area and the, and the terrain. But this is the, just the, the questions that you bring. What are the solutions that we can have from within the Yemeni tribal structure, a structure in expelling this and minimizes the role of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian uh, Peninsula? And more importantly, what would be the role of the neighbors in the Arabian Peninsula? We know that in 91 they expelled over 800,000 and maybe a million workers from Saudi Arabia and from Kuwait. 
what would be that role if they can take some of the unemployed, skilled Yemeni workers to help the unemployment, as these people already have so many expatriate uh, workers working for them, they could use yes. workers from the Arabian uh, Peninsula. I should not take my role here no, because I am this in this finding solutions. You should be the one speaking, but, um, and I should be sitting in the. Thank you for us. Yes, I'm sure there are more he, questions he said from will, our uh, is correct. And ja my name is Jaffa from the Institute of Education. And my question is, is there cooperation between Al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula and Al-Shabaab fighters in South Central Somalia? Is there also movement of fighters between the Arabian Peninsula Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab in South Central? Thank you. There's a question. Hello, my name is Tanya Burdett. I'm not uh, from any university in particular. Um, although I do work at the University of Westminster, but um, I, you mentioned cost and that the tribes would host Al Qaeda until it becomes costly. How, how is that cost defined um, by the tribes, I guess, and, and by yourself? Yes, thank you. Questions, yes. Thank you. My name is Jana Schermann. I'm here a student at LSE. Um, could you comment on the goals uh, that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is aiming to achieve by, by, by their fight? Thank you. Do we have many questions? Yes. We take another three together, perhaps. Yes? Yes. Thank you very much, Harry Vuven, Oxford University. Um, you commented on the thinking within the American foreign policy establishment, and I was wondering why you think that people in Washington don't seem to be learning from the mistakes that were made elsewhere, because surely they've seen presentations such as yours, and I'm sure they have the... Better. Or even better. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, what, could, you, could, you, could you offer some reflections on why they, yes. they do what they do, and why there is no learning? Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think, you know, we academics, we, we, it's, we always, we bark. I mean, that's, that's, we earn our salaries of being uh, critical of what governments do. I mean, I think you have to sit down and see if you were Barack Obama sitting. You're dealing with, uh, Barack Obama cannot afford a single tiny, I mean, it's easy for me to say it's a limited threat. But for, I mean, I, I would argue that if, if the Christmas Day bombing had succeeded, that would have been a disaster for the Obama presidency and the American variety because the terrorism narrative, and this is a bigger topic than really, uh, I mean, has captured the uh, imagination of many Americans. Uh, you have a Republican Party that using the terrorism narrative to say that Barack Obama is soft on the fight of terrorism, that his softness and weakness has basically could have precipitated and triggered the attack against the United States. So at the end of the day, I mean, the reason why you cannot understand the, the Pakistan strategy, what I call the drone uh, uh, war that has been taking place and, and intensified a great deal, there's no comparison between what Barack Obama is doing, what Bush, I mean, there is a, an escalation beyond any kind of, um, I mean, the numbers of attacks uh, during the Obama administration has multiplied, uh, skyrocketed, because I think they're looking at, uh, I mean, counterterrorism measures, 
they cannot put American boots in Pakistan. Uh, the nerve center of Al-Qaeda is there. So you're, you're, you're looking at, I mean, the, the intelligence saying, look, Mr. President, we can take them out. Um, those people make a big difference if we take them out. And they're applying, looking at it uh, in terms of cost and benefits. Yes, anti-American sentiments uh, gets very high, intensified, but then we'll work on it later on. Let's take out as many of the assets and lieutenants as possible. The pressure on, on, on uh, I mean, uh, the leadership must be tremendous because, I mean, when you're being told that uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, you have dozens of Americans or Westerners who are being trained and sent home, uh, I mean, that's a very, uh, if you were the President of the United States, you would take that. Uh, and really the constraints on, on the leadership, domestic constraints, are tremendous. Uh, you cannot understand why the administration, this is not, it's a very rational administration. I mean, I don't, we, we don't need to talk. Uh, Obama is a brilliant man. He, he knows the complexity of the situation. That's how I see it myself. And I think that he has bought the argument is that counter-terrorism counter measures uh, are effective. Uh, and we need to uh, take out as many Al-Qaeda members. And in the calculation of the U.S. intelligence uh, community, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula now uh, superseded Al-Qaeda central in the Pakistan tribal areas. I'll show you how you see. Al-Qaeda in the, in the tribal areas now, they're down to about between 200 and 300. But they are being hunted down and run constantly. You have, I mean, most of the American intelligence services now are really on their uh, tracks in Pakistan. So they, they're not being able to communicate. They, they're deep underground. Uh, according to intelligence services, even the few surviving lieutenants are begging Osama bin Laden to come out, and, and it tells you about they're really beleaguered and besieged in Pakistan. So Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is seen as the new uh, uh, group that basically represents, particular, I mean, uh, in the last year or so. So the pressure is overwhelming on the president. Uh, from both the military and the security apparatus and the terrorism narrative and the Republicans. Because if Obama does not respond effectively and swiftly, think of the repercussions if an attack was to where, was or where to get through. It would be disastrous. And, and this brings me to the question of Somalia here. So it's not just about, you see, the argument is the terrorism narrative uh, lumps and collapses everything together. So the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula becomes an extension of Al-Qaeda central. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula becomes also part of the al-Shabaab uh, movement in Somalia. There's a great deal of speculation, mostly risk analysis. Everything that I have read, everything that I have seen, it's all about, well, of course, al-Shabaab in Somalia say we're willing to come to the help of our brothers in accordingly, but even the same intelligence analysts, I mean, there are multiple voices, say we have no concrete evidence to show any concrete substantive links between uh, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and the, uh, even though you have, I mean, hundreds of thousands of Somali refugees in Yemen, and the idea is the fertilization is very possible. But truly, the terrorism narrative is mo mostly about risk analysis, it's about speculation, and it's, it's the worst case scenario. I mean, I suppose strategic analysis. So if you have a worst case scenario, what do you do? Uh, you basically, you want to err on, on the side of what? Yes, uh, let, let's invest as much resources as possible. So this is how, I mean, the, the, it, 
the advantages is that yes, there are disadvantages, but surely the security of the homeland, the security of our people um, is foremost, in particular if you're, you're commander-in-chief. Economic policies. I mean, I, this is a, a, a structural crisis, as you all know. Uh, there is no magical key to, I mean, there is no magical wand. Uh, this crisis, I mean, my point, and I simplify the great deal, has been in the making since 1990. Uh, the capacity even, let me give you, an, uh, since, as you know, the, the, the friends of Yemen in New York and, and London, uh, all the, the Yemen government has not been able to take more than 10% of the donations because its, its capacity to, I mean, is very limited. Um, again, I'm using term, it's really an institutional wasteland. Uh, the institutions are frayed and, and, and weakened uh, as a result, again, of many years. So it's not just about economic policies, and that's what I said. This is, I know, it's a, it's a complex task, but at the end of the day, you need to think in terms of, I mean, short-term and long-term strategic, and you want to reconstruct and rebuild the frayed and weakening institutions. I'm not going to go into the whole notion of failing institutions and failed state, the whole nonsense uh, that you, you read. Uh, I'm saying weakening institutions and frayed institutions. How do you rebuild them? How do you reconstruct them? How many years take? It took two decades, probably it's going to take 10 years. How do you, I mean, society itself, I mean, very survival of society. When you go to Sana'a and Hodeida, I mean, it's, it's such a horrible scene to see hundreds of villages just died. I mean, it, just collapsing. I mean, the very survival of the nation is stake. I mean, here, think about us here. And I started my talk by saying we're talking about Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, uh, that's why, I mean, I, I, I talk to Yemenis. They don't buy them. You see, you're talking about Al-Qaeda. Our survival is stake. They don't buy the prism. That's what I'm saying. You have to really listen to what the Yemeni, uh, Yemenis want and realize that their crisis is much more strategic, much more existential then I was sitting here pontificating. I'm not, I'm not underestimating the gravity of Al-Qaeda. That's not the question. But it must be contextualized within the multiple challenges faced by Yemen. And Yemenis must be in charge. And that's why you need a, a, a to come back to Yemen's neighbors. Uh, you know, we've made many arguments for, I mean, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now says they have more than a million Yemeni workers in Yemen. Uh, 1.3 million Yemeni workers. They do? They do. That's, that's, that's the numbers, the, the Saudi authorities, when we say, uh, I would like a kind of a, but you see, uh, the problem is uh, when you have a, a regime that basically they, I mean, uh, resolve that to survival. That's why you have to reconstruct institutions. The pressure really, and I, I see the pressure now. Britain and, and the United States are really exerting, I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean, you have, you can't, say we want you to behave and then send the money and the resources uh, to the government itself, even though the government is there. That's the only thing we have. But I think the opposition must be taken into account, since it's a vibrant opposition. The tribes must be taken to, the, when I say the tribes, the tribes are, have always been, uh, I mean, part of the social fabric, the most important element, whether you like it or not. I mean, that's, that's the reality. It's a tribal-based society. This is the structure. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I think the tribes, to me, uh, are really a great resource. Uh, they're not a liability. They're an asset, a great asset to Yemen in, in, in many ways. They serve as checks and balances in Western. Think of what we think about in political science and international relations. They're checks and balances. They keep things in perspective. Um, and that's how you, you deal with it. So it's a long-term. Uh, and many of the international 
I mean, uh, now really activists and human rights and agents who are working in Yemen complain about getting their message and their, because they're facing bureaucracies, they're facing structures that have been deeply entrenched. This is hard work, very hard work. But again, if you, if you, if you are concerned about Yemen, not just because Al-Qaeda, but because you have a beautiful society that's going through one of the most difficult phases in its history, there is more to it uh, than that. Uh, the cost to, to tribes, survival, uh, uh, resources, uh, jobs, employment. Um, I mean, when the international community now, when Germany and Britain and other countries said you can't travel outside, when the resources, I mean, this is affects people. Uh, they need resources, they need to survive. At the end of the day, and that's why I started by saying, the tribes are very pragmatic, very practical. I'm not saying they're, I mean, guns for hire, that's not the question, but they, they, at the end of the day, they're pragmatic. It's a very pragmatic society. Tribal society is very pragmatic. It's not about ideology. Uh, I mean, your son gets killed uh, in the morning, in the evening, you have a musalaha, a settlement, where, you, I mean, you resolve it through assets. Uh, that's how, how it is, how, how great disputes, even blood. Uh, I mean, family blood is resolved through, uh, I mean, tribal mediation. Very that's what I meant by that. And I think that's why any particular strategy must take into account the positive and progressive role that tribes can serve. And that Ali Abdullah Saleh should not be able to manipulate a tribal differences and cleavages in order to really, I mean, consolidate his shaky rule. At the end of the day, there is responsibility, and the responsibility of the government, I mean, that's the point I hope has come very loud and clear, that this is an internal crisis, a man-made crisis. This is not the invention, this is not the crisis of the international community. That a government has been in place for 31 years, it has failed to deliver the goods, coupled with foreign policy issues that brought about, of course, a great tragedy in 1991, the expulsion or the, the forced uh, uh, expulsion of a, of a million uh, Yemeni uh, migrants from Saudi Arabia. Now, um, should we take another round of well, questions? Well, let's take three more questions. Three more questions. Because May uh, is today the Eid. We wanted to go home and, and, and celebrate. I think there are several others here who want to go for their Eid dinner. So we will take three, three more questions. questions. We have a question at the end over there. Hi, uh, James Rahlam from Queen Mary. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, Saudi Arabia and how this fits in with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, does Saudi Arabia view um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as a threat and what policy has it taken towards it so far and how might that affect uh, the outcome of this? Thank you. Please, there's a question. And actually, if you could expand on that, I mean, what does Riyadh generally think uh, of the future of Yemen? I mean, surely this, this is a strategic challenge for Saudi Arabia, and, you know, it, it's, it's had a divisive influence in the past in Yemen. Is that going to change? Thanks. Let's take two more questions. Hello, Lawrence Hargreaves from uh, King's. On a, a lighter note, do you think AQAP, uh, well, do, they, do they chew cot or not? And what, what would their I'm stance sorry, on that be? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. I mean, it was very close to your... So to, yeah, what do, what's AQAP's stance on chewing cot? And uh, <laughs> would, they, would they encourage it or uh, try and get rid of it? Thanks.
Final question. My name is Emre Çalışka, King's College. You commented on the role of religion and its way, how legitimized the Al-Qaeda uh, in Yemen. Do you think, uh, can religion play a role in future, or not in Yemen also, but in the clerics of the Saudi, uh, in Saudi Arabia? Uh, in the past, Saudi Arabia used religion in legitimization of the American presence in the region. So do you think there can be a way for religion to play a role uh, in dealing with this situation? Thanks. You know, I'm, I'm just remembered uh, somebody asked me about what's the aim, what's the, the goal of Al-Qaeda. That's very important. I, I think if there is one, I think, uh, and to come back to qualify what I said, there is one particular, you might say, big picture aim that really unites all, you know, local branches, and that's the establishment of a Quranic-based uh, state, as opposed to the. Uh, relatively secular government that exists in the region. This is really connects all of them in terms of ideology. The ideology is to replace the relatively secular order with Quranic-based state. And, and they all agree on that. That's, and, then, but, and then you have, of course, ideal type. The ideal types like barbarian type, establishment of a centralized religious authority that the caliphate, but that's, I mean, they all start with a particular premise. Uh, Saudi Arabia. I think it's, uh, thank you for bringing the question, both of you. I think uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is perceived to be a more strategic threat to Saudi Arabia than it is for Yemen and the United States of America. In the eyes of the Saudi uh, foreign policy and security uh, community, uh, Al-Qaeda in the, it's really a real threat uh, on multiple levels. And in fact, you would not, we would not be talking about Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula if the fight in Saudi Arabia had not been relatively conclusively, uh, I mean, uh, reached a particular outcome positive for Saudi Arabia. And that's why you're seeing Saudi Arabia now, the, the new coalition of tribes, the Dakhil tribe. Um, I, I don't have the numbers, but my take on it, based on, again, uh, knowing a bit, I would say that the Saudi resources playing a major role and the construction of the tribes. Um, unfortunately, and this is, you know, it's not about criticizing, for the last 20 years or so, Saudi Arabia went to multiple tribes and multiple causes. And because on average you have between one, and again, we don't know the, remember we're speculating, between one and $2.5 billion every year given by Saudi Arabia to various Yemeni uh, uh, coalitions on tribes informal money. It, it changes hands, various tribes, because you, you want to create this big money. And the money itself also has contributed to the weakening of the central authority, because Ali Abdullah Saleh does not really have such big money to, to do that. And I, I would hope, and I agree with you, they, even though uh, it's not just about really taking uh, unskilled workers. I think, again, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and this is where the Gulf Cooperation Council has been really unwilling to even consider the option of a, to come back to your question about long-term economic policy, of trying to really slowly and gradually integrate Yemen into the Gulf Cooperation Council. Of course, after free elections, transparent election, a broad coalition, a, you know, including a... In the same way, I would argue that the European Union is dealing with Turkey. I would see, I would like to see the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, uh, deal with Yemen. And I think at the end of the day, the Gulf Cooperation Council does not really take Yemen seriously. 
it's seen more of a threat, unfortunately, and I'm probably I'm wrong, I'm probably very harsh on them. But it, it, it's like um, keep the patient in a in a critical uh, in a critical uh, room, uh, you know, make sure uh, there is no spillover effect into. So it, it's a very short term. Uh, treatment as opposed to really a kind of a surgical um, thing that takes into account the long term. So I would like, and I my take is that uh, there's a big debate taking place in Saudi Arabia, but things in the Middle East, as you know, take a long time, and this is not just... Uh, but at the end of the day, Yemen, uh, remember, uh, I mean, Yemen could be a great strategic asset, but Yemen could also be a great strategic liability, in particular to the Gulf. I mean, the United States... Uh, at the end of the day, it could, you know, um, try to kill as many al-Qaeda and, and wage war from far away. And, but for Saudi Arabia, it's a much more critical nearby threat. And I, I think at the end of the day, I would like to really see Yemen's Gulf neighbors invest really serious uh, resources in, the, in, in helping to reconstruct Yemeni society and give them hope. Remember, the big point was how do you how do you bring Yemenis? How do you convince them that the world is is taking them seriously? Um, and it's not just about Al Qaeda. I'm saying it's bigger than that. The, the, the challenges facing Yemen are much greater than Al Qaeda. Even though we're dealing here with what we call, I mean, um, a security irritant or nuisance as opposed to strategic question. You know, I, it's, it's fascinating about the Qad. You know, the Qad in Yemen, Yemeni society, they, they chew a form of a weed called the Qad. I mean, this is, it's, think of it, you going every night to a pub and having a beer. Uh, I mean, this is a, a must. It's a sacred thing. I mean, this is, uh, it's really the beer of, of Yemen, the Qad, the chewing, and it takes place between 12 and 4 o'clock. I mean, it, it is... Um, and, you know, in, in early in 1990s and, and uh, after 2001, they, they interviewed, I interviewed young, you know, uh, members and former members of Al-Qaeda. They were all chewing. That's the only way I could interview them. Is in, in, uh, but this particular group, this really, this, uh, I mean, uh, splinter, really, I mean, the most fanatical probably in the world, even though I've never met any one of them or interviewed any one of them, my take on it is that they're fighting a war to the end. I mean, this is good versus evil. It's the camp of belief versus, so smoking, anything, music, this is a, a, a really a nasty group. So uh, I don't think they're chewing caught. Uh, I think they, they, they're conspiring to, to do harm to Yemen and, and, and others as well. Uh, what else? The question about religion, you said. Well, I mean, again, this is really, I mean, they, it's not about religion. We're talking about an ideology, even though they would like us to believe they want to establish. I mean, think about it. Surely, if it was about religion, the Al-Qaeda um, central and the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, you would have had millions of people. I mean, I mean again, not to underestimate Al-Qaeda. At the height of its power, Al-Qaeda, bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, never numbered more than three, 4,000 fighters. This is not about, this is a small group of extremist activists who believe that somehow the world of Islam has gone astray, that the only way that Muslims are no longer Muslims, they are part, they excommunicate the Muslim world. In fact, they are, they, really their revolt is not against the West. Their revolt is against the very dominant narrative in Muslim societies. Uh, at the end of the day, they're not just revolting against the political elite. Al-Qaeda is a revolt against both the political and religious establishment. They, they twist everything around. 
uh, I mean, this is really a serious revolutionary group. Uh, you cannot understand Al-Qaeda without understanding this revolt against the dominant religious establishment. And if you, if you look at, read Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri from the mid-1990s to the present, is that the religious establishment is an extension of the political establishment. Um, and they, they mostly cite, uh, of course, the, the, the writings of Sayyid Qutb, uh, who, who was one of the top theorists and ideologues of the uh, radical wing of the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1950s and 1960s. His book, Milestones, still represents the constitution of the militant Islamist movement, and most of his disciples, whether Abdullah Azzam or Ayman Zawahiri, are disciples of Sayyid Qutb. And to Sayyid, to Sayyid Qutb, basically, uh, the world is no longer divided into Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb, the camp of belief and the camp of war. The war of the camp of belief, Dar al-Islam, has become Dar al-Harb, the camp of unbelief. It tells you how, how I mean, existential the, the rapture that has taken place in Muslim societies. Stop here. That was. Thank you, Thank so much you very me. much. What stimulating questions. We, we feel we want more. So Next thank you time, for yeah. all the solutions and for coming. And to Professor. Okay.